Continuing our reading through the book of Proverbs, we come to Proverbs 13, taking up verses 6 through 10. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon his word. Father, attend the reading of your word and uh, the preaching of your word with the gracious and good influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, prepare our hearts to receive. Be pleased to bring forth life, O Lord. Uh, build us up in wisdom, uh, create in us an earnest longing uh, for wisdom, O Lord, for understanding of who you are and the excellencies which you have made known in Jesus Christ through your word. We pray, Father, that uh, we would receive of these things, that we would see them aright, we would desire them aright, Lord, and that you'd be pleased to give them as you have promised to do, as you have promised to build us up and to make known the riches of your love and the riches of knowledge that have been opened unto us in Jesus Christ. So do these things, Father, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. Continuing our time in the seventh commandment, you can find the shorter catechism either in the white insert or on page 973 of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. I'll read the brief verse from Exodus chapter 20. This is the word of God. You shall not commit adultery. And thus ends God's word. And then question 71 asks, what is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. And question 72, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. The novel Anna Karenina opens with two men in two very different situations. On the one hand, you have Steva, uh, who has just been unfaithful to his wife, and his wife has discovered it. And he wakes up to find his life in shambles, his house all in confusion, and he himself in quite a dilemma. 
His good friend Levin is also visiting Moscow from the country. Moscow is the place where Kitty lives, whom Levin loves. A man who has eyes only for one woman, who can't understand how anyone else could ever see another woman. And these two men sit down to dinner. They're friends. And Steve explains to Levin what he's done. That he's forsaken his wife and that he's attracted to this French governess. Levin loves Steve, they're friends, they go back a long way, but he can't understand what he's saying. Levin's saying it makes no sense, that's, that's nonsensical. That'd be like coming home from a feast and stealing a loaf of bread on your way. And Steve objects, yes, but sometimes bread just smells so good. It's a vivid scene, and it accurately encapsulates much of what Scripture teaches about man's sinful heart. It doesn't matter that God has given a good gift. It doesn't matter that God's given a rich gift. It doesn't matter that he is instructed in extensively about the context and the purpose of that gift. Man prefers to steal bread Mm. and ignore the feast. Mm. Last week, we talked about God's good gift of marriage as the necessary context to make sense of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. We argued that God forbidding murder showed God's interest in preserving life. Here we see that God forbidding adultery shows God's interest in preserving marriage. But there's another interesting observation to be made before we move on and take up the catechism proper. It's interesting that God addresses the sexual life of man through a very specific verb. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And through this very specific verb, he invites us to consider the sexual life of man. And what I want to argue is that by highlighting that particular door into the sexual life of man, he's reminding us that he has made rich provision for that appetite. That it isn't a command from an unreasonable God. It is profiling a guardrail, a safety measure, protection, and highlighting a good gift. I think it's hard for us, and understandably so, to take up a delicate topic like physical intimacy, sex, because we've gotten it so wrong, and we live in a time and a place where you can hardly turn your head and not be bombarded by some form of man's perversion, some form of the exploitation of the power that is alluded to in this gift. But Scripture speaks of it. 
Not just here and not just in negative terms as we're going to see. And so I think we are obligated to take our cue from Scripture to hear what God's Word has to say on this matter, not just negatively, but positively. I think Scripture helps us immediately in that it does give us all sorts of helpful analogs or pictures into this life to speak about it in a way that acknowledges its delicacy. Levin and Steva chose bread and a feast, and in many ways, that's the biblical preferred image if you read Song of Songs. And so we're invited to consider how grotesque and wrong-headed our appetites are. If gluttony is a danger on one hand, which is what C.S. Lewis contends, that you wouldn't blame a man for being hungry, you would blame a man if he only ever talked and thought about food. (laughs) If on the one hand, gluttony is a danger, there are other dangers and disorders that confront us, all of which are a product of our fallen state, is it not? Gluttony on the one hand, but perhaps anorexia on the other. Just an utter distaste for it. The very mention of it, the very mention of anything near it is enough to bring forth this revulsion. I assure you that's not modesty. That's a disorder as well, for it can't stand in the light of Scripture. Physical intimacy, sex, is not wrong in and of itself. Scripture's plain. It's a gift. It was given to man in his state of innocence. Be fruitful and multiply, he said in Genesis 1. The only way to heed that would have been to partake of fruit, beloved. The very image that Song of Songs uses. The verb itself is richly evocative to the vast array of trees and fruit that God gave to man, not just to eke him by in nourishment, but to showcase the remarkable creativity and goodness of God. As all sorts of different smells and tastes were set before them in the fruit of the garden. Be fruitful, beloved. And multiply. Can you feel something of how wrong-headed we are on this matter? Sex in and of itself is not wrong. It's something delicate, yes. Something private, yes. But not something inherently foul. God's word is plain. Nor is it the chief gift to be had in this life. This is a sort of overture of what's to come. Sexual pleasure and delight in its present form does not compare with the delight that wisdom offers, even in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is sweeter than honey, the choicest of honeycomb. Very similar image that you get in Song of Songs. It's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. The Lord has withheld from you the gift of the one, either either in a temporary or a permanent state of singleness. No mistake, he's not withheld from you the choicest of gifts to be had in this world. And indeed, as all of God's gifts are supposed to do, they are simply to remind us 
of the excellency of our God who gives the gifts. That the giver is better than every gift. He's more wonderful than we will ever know. And the chief proof of that is in giving his son and in taking the church as his son's bride to know and love the son and to be known and loved by the son, the choicest among 10,000s to cite Psalm 45. So let's consider briefly another good gift of our God, the gift of sex. So Proverbs chapter 5 Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Notice that the father and the mother speaking to the child speak frankly. Don't they? There's a plainness with which they address the simple reality of this world. This isn't just here. I trust you know that one of the main structural devices, one of the main settings for the teaching in Proverbs is the teaching of a mother and a father to a child, to a son, a growing child. And so you can appreciate that this frank teaching, this frank willingness to acknowledge the way things are in God's creation. There's no timidity here. There's no squeamishness here. Why? Because the life of the children are at stake. One must deal in truth when the stakes are high. Is that not the case? What benefit is there for us in shrinking back from something that we know is going to be an issue? It was an issue for us. It's going to be an issue for them. You appreciate the frankness, the plainness, the straightforward nature that comes through in the book of Proverbs. It's not just here. It's throughout the first nine chapters and then it's scattered throughout the book. Nor is it just relegated to the book of Proverbs. There's some sense in which we come to certain passages in Scripture and we get a little squeamish, don't we? Go read Genesis 38. That's uncomfortable. Genesis 35. That's uncomfortable. Oh, most of Abraham's behavior with Sarah and the implications there. That's uncomfortable. We have warrant to address with plainness the things that God's word addresses with plainness. But we can also mark the genre of literature we're in, wisdom. 
that there is a certain discretion necessary for handling topics such as this and many others beside, but not frankness inculcate a naivete either. God's word invites us to deal in all matters in truthfulness. And that call, that summons ought to make us painfully aware of how in need of his wisdom we are. For not just saying true things, but saying true things at a good time in a good way. That's the excellencies of wisdom. Did you get those three coordinates? Speaking the truth in the right way at the right time. That's everywhere what Proverbs set forth as the excellency of wisdom. And so we ought to feel our need for that here. Particularly as we speak with our children. But even now as we take this up as the people of God. And look at his word as a mirror. And consider our circumstances. Consider our Heart, consider the particularities of how we've gotten this wrong, how we've gotten this right, earnestly desiring to be led by our King, even in this matter, the one through whom all things were created. So you can note also, it speaks soberly about the matter. It speaks plainly that there is a danger to be found, one that marriage doesn't even solve once and for all. It's a perennial danger. It's one that's constant, one that demands attention, one that demands vigilance, one that demands a guarding of the heart. There's a soberness with which the parents set forth this blessing and this danger. How many of God's gifts that's true of, is it not? They speak plainly about this. They speak soberly about this. They also speak loftily about this, don't they? These images are remarkable. Images of water and fountains, springs, images of does and gazelles on landscapes, images of wine and feasting. You go to Song of Songs and it's even further still. You can mark just the pure garden-like paradisical imagery, creation imagery, which is harvested and used to somehow prompt thoughts about this lovely reality. Poetic, veiled speech, not from squeamishness, but out of a sense of the truth of the matter. Mark that. The veiled language here, the evocative imagery here, to prompt the mind and the heart to consider the realities it's describing. The circumlocution is not from squeamishness but from a true sensitivity to what is taking place. Think about it. How would you describe a meal enjoyed with your closest friends around a table with meat and wine? There's a sense in which a direct description wouldn't do it all. Then he passed the bread. Then I sipped my wine. 
Then we ate. A bare description doesn't even begin to capture the excellencies of what is being enjoyed there. How do you do that? You have to enlist creativity to prompt the mind to consider what's taking place in an unseen register. That's what's going on here with this lofty, evocative language. It speaks plainly, speaks soberly, speaks loftily, and it speaks glowingly, beloved. There's no sense that this is dirty. These are pure images, water. There's no more common image in Scripture for purity than water. That's perhaps the dominant image here. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Your springs, streams of water, let your fountain be blessed. Glowing streams, fountains. Think of how evocative that image is. I was walking in a state park the other day, came upon a waterfall and Waterfalls are so immersive in their experience. Just water cascading over rock. There's sound. There's scent. There's feel. There's sight. There's taste. It's immersive. That's the sort of imagery he uses here to set forth the loveliness of this gift given to husband and wife. draws images from nature, animals here. This one perhaps strikes us as a little bit strange. I don't know if I'd pull this one out in your next Valentine's Day card. My darling, you're as lovely as a mountain goat. (laughs) But the English translators are to be credited here. They use words that are softer. Doe, deer, a lovely deer, a graceful it's like, well, what does that have to do with any of this? <laughs> Where do these things come from? I'm not a, a hunter or a naturalist, but I do think there's something remarkably elegant about graceful, sleek, powerful bodies in motion that almost evoke like waves as they run upon a landscape. That would have been the idea. There's a, there's a loveliness to that sort of motion. We were walking around the lake the other day and we just stopped because all of a sudden a bald eagle just cut from one tree to another tree and everybody stopped. It was like, whoa, that's remarkable. And it was, it was poetry in motion. This flight, swift, Sharp like a knife, but powerful and worth watching. Mm. Those are the sorts of images that he's evoking. There's a certain awe, there's a certain power, a certain display. It sort of takes the breath away. Wow. And then the choicest image, wine. Be intoxicated in her love. It's the Song of Songs climactic moment. Your love is better than wine. It's hard to describe even just the of wine. 
the satisfaction, the richness, its context in the communion of a meal, the gladness of heart, all of it bound up right there. We can also probably call from this some other observations. Ian Duguid in his commentary on Song of Songs says that the wine imagery to set forth the love between a husband and a wife and its physical contours starts at the very beginning when the woman is likened to a vineyard. And so you track the movement from vine, grape, harvest, winemaking, cup. I don't think that's incidental. We can highlight the things that Scripture highlights. That it, it's not to be enjoyed until it's ready. You have to wait to go from vine to wine. It's a process that takes time. It's also a process that takes cultivation and care. Wild grapes don't just turn into the excellencies of the cup. Vineyards need to be tended. Grapes need to be harvested at a proper time. And so it is with the excellencies of love. One can't just demand the cup as it were, but rather the cup is the lovely exclamation point on the work of investing in love and care and trust and patience, demonstrating trustworthiness for men that our strength that the Lord has given us truly is being deployed for the provision and the protection of the women and the families that God has given us. The wine imagery is also easy to see the dangers of such gifts in. Is it not? The drunkenness that he envisions here is very clearly not intended to evoke sinful drunkenness. It's intended to invoke a thick satisfaction, a rich and deep drinking. But Proverbs has much to say about the dangers of wine taken out of context. And perhaps it's the number one danger about wine. One simply chases the feeling that wine gives removing the cup from the context of the feast. There's an excellency about taking up the cup in the wedding feast. Some of my favorite moments in this life have been taking up the cup in its proper context at the feast. That's a far cry from drinking alone in a corner out of a paper bag, isn't it? And so it is with taking the cup of this physical intimacy out of its designed context. It becomes as sad as it is glorious in its right context. Another way to say this is physical intimacy is a means to an end, not an end to be endlessly, relentlessly chased, come what may. We see that in the meal, don't we? The feast. The feast is lovely because of all of the narratives attending all of the hearts gathering around the table. 
as you enjoy this good gift together. The meal is lovely because it strengthens those bonds of love and delight and trust among friends and family. It's a means to an end. It facilitates a deeper gift. You might say a spiritual gift. But if you're ever only fixed on the meat and the wine, you miss that entirely. So it is for physical intimacy as well. The richness comes because of the narratives attending the two hearts that give themselves one to another in an act of self-giving. And it's a bond that strengthens as it's partaken of. Here for not that long, but an effect which is deeper, more meaningful, and better. It's a means to an end. It's meaningful within that context of love and self-ending. But that's not the only end it serves either. There's a remarkable practical argument here that emerges from Proverbs 5. Notice how the rehearsal of the excellencies of the good gift as given by God in its proper context prompts the question of verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Tremper Longman stated it rather plainly. He says, the best defense is a good offense. (laughs) The active delighting in the one is one of the surest ways to guard against the deceptive allurements of the other. Because you're better positioned to see that it's just a mockery. It's just aping the excellencies of the gift enjoyed in its good context. That's what he says here. In other words, he's saying you can't compare sex with a faithful wife to sex with a prostitute. What are you thinking, my boy? That's wisdom. That's God's word. It's right there, beloved. But we also see its loveliness, not just in the delight that it fosters, not just in the protection from sexual immorality, but that it issues forth in life so frequently. How wonderful that is, that such an act of giving one to another is the Lord's chosen mean to bring about another whom you love with a depth and a richness that you don't even understand until you've experienced it. How beautiful are God's ways. How good he is. How wise are his designs. Can I get a Presbyterian nod? And as with all of God's good gifts, they invite us to consider the riches of his kindness to us. We'll close on this. Ecclesiastes 9. Starting in verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in this life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. 
For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And make no mistake, beloved, he's not commenting absolutely on what takes place after death. Rather, he's magnifying the excellencies that we enjoy even in this life of toil and trouble. One of the temptations about living in a world marred by sin and misery One of the temptations of living as Christians is that we can sometimes feel guilty over the joy that God's good gifts bring. Ecclesiastes here says, go, eat your bread with joy. Let your heart be merry with delight in the wife whom you love. Why? Because God has given you these things to do, beloved. Paul says in 1 Timothy, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. God's gifts aren't to be rejected when they're received with thanksgiving. Mark, if your heart hasn't stumbled there. Now make no mistake, I told this to one, I'll tell it to all. I do think that we ought to relentlessly be wrestling with the way that our abundance and the way that our comfort may be depriving us of spiritual good. But that does not take away from the fact that what we have has been given to us by God. And to despise the gift would be just as dishonoring unto him. To reject the gift that he gives would be to say that we know better than he does. And beloved, I assure you, we don't. You don't. I don't. See, if he's given it to you, beloved, indeed, seek his wisdom. Indeed, seek his spirit to make sure you don't cling too fiercely to the gift. Indeed, seek that spirit of generosity. But beloved, enjoy the gifts he's given you. For such is a way of honoring him. We're also invited to see the richness of his goodness in these gifts. These are no bare gifts, even in this hard world. Bread, wine, oil, marriage, intimacy. Even in a hard life, beloved, those are rich gifts, are they not? And where do they come from? They come from a good father. They come from one who showcases not a bare giving, but an abundance and a thick and a widespread distribution of, of such abundantly rich, thick gifts. Is that not the case? But Mark, that these gifts are here for a moment and gone the next. That's what he says, your vain life. You're not going to find ultimate satisfaction in the gifts, beloved, because they're here for a second and then they're gone. To perennially seek the pleasure that comes from these gifts is to be deceived by vanity. It's to try to capture the wind. It's to try to nail sand to a wall. You won't do it. They're gifts to be received with an open hand, which means they pass right through. And we're left looking at the one who gives them, beloved, in awe 
that these good gifts just flicker his goodness, which is assured unto us in an abundance and a fullness that far surpasses the best gifts that everyone enjoys because they've been purchased for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that's good and true and beautiful here, beloved, ought to work in our hearts a yearning to be home with our Father when all is good and true and beautiful always. That's the purpose his gifts serve. That's the confidence with which we can receive them for but a moment and then they're gone. A confidence that he is good towards us and has stored up permanent good towards us. And this has been confirmed that the one who is good, his word and his blood, beloved, receive this testimony. Even now we taste goodness, but one day we will see it face-to-face when we sit down at table with the true husband, the choicest among 10,000. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us the ears to hear and to delight in your word, to seek it and earnestly desire the heavenly things, Father, to receive the earthly gifts aright such that all things might build us up and trust and confidence and love towards you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.